Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. On today's podcast, I'm excited to collaborate with Don McPherson's terrific 12 Geniuses podcast. For those of you not familiar with the 12 Geniuses podcast, I would suggest you check it out on your streaming platform of choice. The 12 Geniuses podcast is really good. It explores the major trends shaping the world. Don has access to and does some really interesting interviews with many of the top leaders in business, politics, athletics, the arts, and much more. In this episode, which we conducted as a joint podcast of 12 Geniuses and China in the World, Don and I had a chance to discuss the history of U.S.-China relations since the historic visit to China of President U.S. President Richard Nixon in February 1972. During that visit, which was described then as the week that changed the world, President Nixon met with then-Chinese leader Mao Zedong and laid the groundwork for the normalization of U.S.-China relations, which ultimately took place at the end of the decade uh, during the administration of President Jimmy Carter. And Don and I cover the evolution of U.S.-China relations since that historic visit, including my own time working in the White House on the national security staffs of President George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, including serving as the China director for both presidents. We conclude by assessing the impact of the ongoing war in Ukraine on the U.S.-China relationship. For more analysis of the major trends shaping the world, be sure to subscribe to the 12 Geniuses podcast. And for more episodes on Chinese foreign policy and U.S.-China relations, be sure to check out the over 150 episodes on the China in the World podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Paul, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you very much, Dan. Let's start off with your background. Tell us about how you got interested in China and your expertise on the subject. Well, it's, it's an interesting you know, story. I was an army officer and I was, I'd spent my, my time as a lieutenant in Germany at the end of you know, Cold War. I arrived there in the summer of 1989, and the Berlin Wall fell six months later. A year and a half later, I found myself in Iraq for the first desert storm, then back to Germany, and then I had a little time left in my army commitment, and I decided to go to Asia, where I was posted in Korea. And you know, given all that, I was just I just became very interested in international affairs and what was happening in the world. I mean, I just happened to be in some really interesting places at interesting times. And then while I was in Korea, I traveled to China. And that was 1994. And I could, it was very clear that this was a place that was moving and moving fast and had significant ambitions uh, and was going to play an increasingly important role in the world. And I felt, you know, that there were not a lot of Americans out there. I mean, there, there are some, but not, not enough that understand China, in large part because, you know, we didn't have relations for so long. And I felt, you know, that this was an area that interested me and, and I wanted to learn the language and dive right into it. We're recording this on March 17th in Singapore, March 16th here in Minneapolis. And last month, we commemorated a very important anniversary related to China. And that was Nixon's, President Nixon's first meeting with Chairman Mao and the Chinese. 
And I'm wondering if you can just tell us what the rationale behind that trip was. America's opening to China was really premised on the hopes that China might one day reform and, and become more like the U.S., more of a liberal democracy market economy. Others talk about the strategic motivations behind President Nixon's visit, the desire to really get America out of Vietnam without China filling the vacuum. Uh, but more importantly, I think just to put pressure on the Soviet Union in the context of the ongoing Cold War. And I tend to agree with the latter interpretation. I think you look back in 1972 and you look at China, it was in the throes of the Cultural Revolution. The notion that China would somehow converge with the economic political systems of today of the West, I just don't think was part of Nixon's rationale. They were realists, Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger as national security advisor. And I think they wanted to partner with China to face off against the Soviet Union, you know, and thaw relations between the U.S. and China so the U.S. could really focus exclusively on the competition with the Soviet Union. And, you know, as you know, Don, it's part of what is referred to in sort of political science, and it's become a sort of commonly used phrase of the triangular diplomacy between the U.S., China, and Russia. Henry Kissinger is credited with the for, that, that, that phrase, triangular diplomacy, sort of as a way to manage the relations between two contesting communist powers, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. And Nixon wanted to exploit what was happening at the time, which was an intense rivalry was forming between People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, and exploit that rivalry in a way that would strengthen the U.S. strategic position in the world, put more pressure on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union at the time was considered a greater threat than China. And so forging a new and stronger relationship with China would help the U.S. in that diplomatic context. And it's why it's so striking when you look at the situation today. Fifty years later, things look very different in the context of that strategic triangular relationship. It is now China and Russia that have developed quite strong strategic ties, and their relations that they have now with each other are much stronger than the relationship that each of them have with the United States. You served as White House China director for two administrations. Can you talk about how U.S. policy toward China has evolved since the Nixon visit and specifically under the Bush and Obama administrations? It has really evolved uh, since you know Nixon's visit and the normalization, which took place under the Carter administration in 1979. Unlike the Cold War, you know, U.S. that was in the 2000s, so the Soviet Union had already disintegrated. Uh, the Cold War was over, and U.S.-China engagement during the time that I was in the White House was not based on that strategic rationale that the U.S. and China have this common enemy in the Soviet Union. That original strategic rationale had gone away. And so instead, what we saw the Bush administration really was trying to craft a China policy that would, you know, as we talked about in the last question, try to ensure that China would play a responsible role in the world uh, and in Asia as it grew in power and influence. And it really focused on trying to convince China to be less of a disruptor, a disruptor in international affairs. It wasn't really focused, I mean, on this notion that we need to make China a liberal political system and a democratic power. Although there's certainly the hope that that would happen, but the goal of the strategy was more about integrating China into the regional, international, political, and economic architecture so that it would play that supportive, responsible, constructive role rather than seek to overturn 
the global architecture that the U.S. and other countries had built after the end of World War II. For the Bush administration, I think continued political reform in China, again, was never really guaranteed. And the last point I would make on this is we actually had a a hedging strategy that was part of our China strategy that did guard against the possibility that Chinese leaders would choose a different path, which looks to be the case today. We upgraded, for example, our security, economic, and political relations with countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Philippines, formed you know, upgraded economic and security ties with countries in Southeast Asia. And if you look down at the tools that the Biden administration is now using to sort of counter China and push back on China, many of the tools that we developed in the Bush administration around strengthening alliances, the Quad, which is something that the Biden administration has really embraced, this grouping of democracies in the region, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, as a counterweight to growing Chinese influence, that was actually started in the Bush administration. So these tools that we started to develop are now being used in a much more assertive way because of the challenges that China presents. What sort of policy changes occurred during the Trump administration? How are they carrying forward during the, you know, the first year plus of the Biden administration? So, you know, I back up even just a little bit to the, the second term of the Obama administration, because that's really uh, something I often point out. It, it's not that the Trump administration came in and overnight sort of changed things. Frustrations really grew at the end of the Obama administration uh, in seeing a China that was changing. China was building artificial islands in the South China Sea. The U.S. was, you know, condemning those actions. Chinese were engaged in cyber theft of uh, hundreds of uh, billions of dollars of intellectual property of U.S. companies. Um, we were, you know, getting frustrated because we couldn't address a number of trade and economic concerns. And this frustration was building at the end of the Obama administration. And there was a debate about whether or not the U.S. should take a much more harder uh, approach to China. And then, the, and then, and then the Trump, President Trump was elected. And he was a disruptor, right? And he disrupted a lot of things. Were those things like building the islands in the South China Sea? And I think there was currency devaluation, potentially. Maybe that was one of the economic things that you were alluding to. Was that when President Xi came into power or was it happening prior to that? This was actually before President Xi, um, uh, which is interesting because I think much of the Many of the changes that we see from China started prior to his elevation to be the Secretary General. But I think what we've seen is since President Xi has come into office, they've gone into overdrive. Uh, he's, he's really ratcheted things up. So it, it's some of these are, you know, really w would have happened probably over a longer period of time, could have happened just potentially over a longer period of time. Um, but President Xi is also a change agent in that regard that he really ramped it up. Uh, and so what you have now, Don, today is you have a much more competitive U.S.-China relationship than, is, than existed during certainly my time in the White House. Tensions and risks in the relationship have expanded across a number of areas, technology, political, military, economic, trade, even ideological. Um, and, the, and the shift 
over the last six or so years has really been stark. Um, and they've moved, and the U.S. and China have moved from this framework of engagement, starting from Nixon, going all the way through the Obama administration, and now the framework is called strategic competition with China. The Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas, in the early days of the Trump administration, I think summed it up well. He said he was hard pressed to think of another consensus in American foreign policy, something that both Republicans and Democrats could agree upon, which engagement was, because it was Democratic presidents, Republican presidents. He was hard pressed to think of another consensus in American foreign policy that's moved as far and as fast as the U.S. consensus on China. So we've seen a pretty dramatic shift. In China, what you hear from Chinese leaders and experts is this downturn in U.S.-China relations is they attribute it to this concept of the Thucydides trap, of the natural result of a diminishing U.S. power and a rising China. So, you know, the U.S. is simply reacting in this description to China's growing influence. Not necessarily that China is doing anything wrong or doing anything differently. It's just that the U.S. is, is worried about maintaining its global superpower status and now is trying to keep China down. And in the U.S., of course, you hear a very different narrative that it's about the changes coming from China, especially under President Xi Jinping. So you have these sort of dual narratives uh, taking place between the U.S. and China. And that's, I think, leading to a stalemate, which is sort of the last article that I wrote with a colleague of mine, Sam Bresnik. But you hear a lot more about cyber theft and espionage and um, technologies that are potentially spying on American citizens. I, I saw an interview with FBI Director Ray recently, and the interviewer said, you know, is it, can you comment on China having a dossier on every American adult? You know, they basically have stolen our profiles and our data um, to, to better understand us. And, you know, he didn't deny it. And so you, you hear things like that. And, that, and we weren't hearing about those types of things 10 years ago. And, you know, Don, that's a great point, because I think the Trump administration, um, as much as I think um, their policies were not very effective, this is one thing I think that they, they, they should get credit for, which is putting a bright spotlight on some of the real challenges that China presents to our own national security and our own interests. Uh, and some of the malign activities that uh, China is undertaking that, again, threaten our interest. Um, and so Trump administration went to great extent to highlight those challenges, which changed, which helped to contribute to changing the political consensus on China and the framework that we use today. Where they didn't do very well is addressing those challenges, putting together a coherent strategic approach to address those in a way um, that resulted in progress that was, you know, aligned to U.S. interests. That's really where they fell short. They were often very ad hoc. It was more, you got the sense they were more angry at China. It was more of a attitude than it was a policy per se. Uh, and I think the Biden administrations had come into office wanting to try to fix that and put together a more effective policy. The topic of this episode is Chinese leadership. And I think it's really important to understand China's leader in order to understand China's leadership today and going forward. Can you describe what kind of leader President Xi is and what his future is? 
I think it's fair to say, I think most people would agree with this, that many in the United States, in, in, in the political leaders and other sort of China analysts and, and also the international community, we really underestimated uh, President Xi. Um, there's a New York Times article from when, when President Xi was coming into office, the bureau chief in Beijing, Nicholas Kristof, wrote, the new paramount leader, Xi Jinping, will spearhead a resurgence of economic reform and probably some political easing as well. Mao's body will be hauled out of Tiananmen Square on his watch, and Liu Liu Xiaobo, the, the dissident, the Nobel Peace Prize winning writer, will be released from prison. Now, many foreign observers thought that she was going to be a pragmatic, business-like leader. Uh, and what Nicholas Kristof wrote, I think it's fair to say that in, in, in some senses, the exact opposite has happened. has gone a very different direction. Um, and so some thought President Xi might move away from you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party's more dogmatic roots, given that his father, Xi Zhongshun, was persecuted during the Cultural Revolution in, in dramatic ways. And it really affected President Xi's life. He didn't see his father for many years. His family was really tormented and persecuted. And so we thought, you know, given his experience, he's going to move away from that kind of approach. But since coming to power, you know, first we saw President Xi consolidate his power through this very intense anti-corruption campaign, which in many ways uh, was needed because corruption was becoming a problem. But he's also using the anti-corruption campaign to get rid of his political adversary as well. So there's a political element to it as well. And he was able to purge a number of his political rivals. And then in subsequent years, during his mass appeal to Chinese nationalism under this rubric of the China dream or the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, it's really allowed President Xi to kind of depict himself as this strong leader capable of leading China to national rejuvenation and rewriting the history of China's kind of this uh, century of humiliation um, that China underwent. And so many analysts are shocked to the degree that President Xi has revitalized that Communist Party ideology. We thought he would move away from that. Um, they're surprised at how much he has cracked down on dissent, rolled back economic reforms, and really challenged the international order in many ways. Um, and I think that was quite surprising. He, President Xi possesses a high tolerance for risk. And that's very different than previous Chinese leaders, which were very conservative and risk averse. Uh, and this is both in domestic policy, but also in foreign policy. Um, and, we, and we see that in a number of international issues. She, President Xi seems to have a pronounced sense of urgency to challenge the status quo. And now you see China stepping forward saying, um, you know, we've integrated into the international system. We but we also are a different type of political system where we're, we're unique and we don't agree with everything, especially we don't agree with everything that the U.S. says. And so we think it's time that the, the world accommodated the Chinese interests, preferences and differences. 
And that's kind of the China that you're seeing today being led by President Xi. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about is is term limits, because it's my understanding that his term is ending, but the term limits have been repealed. I think there were two term limits uh, previously, and that's no longer the case. So, you know, what can we expect his future to be like? His power, Don, is so strong and so consolidated that I would argue he will be leader for life I mean, for as long as he's alive in China, even if another person is designated as the president, much like when uh, Dmitry Medvedev became president of Russia and, and everybody knew that you know, Putin was really the guy calling the shots. And I think that will be the case when it comes to President Xi as well. And so in the fall, there will be the 20th Party Congress, October, um, and it's expected that President Xi will take on his third term as president, which is unprecedented in the Chinese political system. Previous two leaders, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, they each did 10 years. How do China and the West, mostly the U.S., peacefully coexist going forward? Uh, Neither country really should want the kind of competition where each is seeking to sort of eliminate the other as a competitor. You know, my good friend Danny Russell, uh, who was assistant secretary for East Asia under Obama, said we should think about it more as Mm -hmm. the competition between sort of two rival baseball teams like the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees, where the competition makes both teams better. In the end, one is going to win, but in the process, both both teams uh, get better, uh, as opposed to sort of two rival gangs, the Bloods and the Crips, that are out to destroy each other. You know, if we long, move along that path, it's not good for either country. It's not good for the international community. And our, frankly, our economies are too independent, I would argue, for this kind of fight to the finish competition. So, and, and, and Americans and Chinese alike would suffer greatly from the economic and political consequences of that kind of you know, negative sum confrontation. And so I think that, you know, at the end of the day, managing competition, avoiding conflict with China is going to require the two countries to establish a set of agreed upon principles consistent with international norms that help the two countries reduce tension, mitigate conflict. Uh, We've got to have the communication channels that are necessary to be able to do this up and running. We have to be able to communicate effectively in any relationship, whether it's personal or state to state. That's important. Deconfliction protocols so that in the event there's an accident or some inadvertent collision between our military assets and the Asia Pacific, we have the ability to come together and, and, and manage the escalation of that and to ensure that it doesn't evolve into a broader conflict. Um, And that will require mechanisms to try to resolve our differences, both in the Asia Pacific, but also internationally, but also in technology as, um, you know, it's evolving as a much more important domain. Many say that the country that really sort of dominates the frontier technologies of artificial intelligence or quantum computing will be the country that possesses the greatest national strength, international position in the world going forward. So how do we deal with China on the issue of technology? And it will require genuine efforts, I think, to solve uh, long-term structural issues around many of the areas that we talked about, trade, technology, human rights, 
And the Biden administration hasn't really even embarked yet fully on that kind of effort that thinks about the relationship over the long term. Um, there, I think they, they know that needs to be done. Uh, they want to get there. Uh, but what they're doing is they're trying to, they're trying to get our domestic house in a better situation under what they call domestic renewal, show that our democracy can work again, strengthen our position at home, and then strengthen our position internationally so that when we negotiate with China on these broader, more structural long-term issues, we're coming at it from a position of strength. And that and that'll take some time to get to that position. I don't think they've yet embarked upon that process. I, I don't think we can talk about Chinese leadership without talking about China's Belt and Road Initiative. So first, could you start off by describing what that is? And my question on that is, is it the 21st century version of the Cold War? It's an important initiative, and I'm glad you know you raised it. In, in fact, is Xi Jinping's flagship foreign policy initiative. Uh, it was put forward by him. It's not something that sort of bubbled up from the ground up through the bureaucracy and presented to President Xi. Uh, he planted the flag on this, and it's important to him. Uh, it was now written. It's now written into the Chinese constitution as of 2017. So it's here to stay. Uh, and it's really an effort, as you know, to put a lot of money into infrastructure development and financing throughout the primarily the developing world. Um, and, you know, I wrote an article recently in the National Interest where I talked about President Biden uh, is talking about sort of democracy versus authoritarian systems. Uh, and he's working with democracies in, in Europe and in the Asia Pacific to confront China. China casts a much wider net um, and in, in terms of you know, the, the countries that it's working with. And that wider net involves the global south, the developing countries, Africa, Middle East, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Uh, we're not competing uh, as much in those areas. We're not doing as much in those areas. Now, China's largesse isn't free. It comes with strings. It comes with a lot of things that these countries don't like. but they are attractive in the sense that they're addressing the needs of these developing countries, whether it's infrastructure, building roads and ports and buildings. Uh, they're cheap, they're fast. Uh, they, <laughs> what we don't like, they usually come with sort of, you know, relaxed oversights and uh, governance and transparency and environmental standards. We don't like that in the US. I mean, we prefer to have efforts where you're doing infrastructure and development in countries, but you're also putting the onus on them to make sure that their governance is, is enhanced and that, that it's, the efforts are transparent and environmental issues are addressed. So um, that is what China is trying to do. Uh, it's welcomed in many parts of the world. And I think what the U.S. looks at in mo mostly is the strategic aspect of it, um, that by undergoing this kind of effort, the Chinese are able to enhance their strategic influence around the world. And the Chinese push back and say, this is not a strategy. Uh, this is an initiative. Uh, this is not about geopolitics. It's about infrastructure. It's about helping countries. Uh, but at the end of the day, if China does it right, it will no doubt be able to enhance its strategic influence. 
I would say that it's it has the potential not of just to influence, but to manipulate these countries and to put China in a position where they get access to resources and to cripple these countries financially, potentially. That, that's my perspective on it. I think you're exactly right. If you look, for example, at the Hanban, it's called the Hanban Tota port in Sri Lanka, put together a deal with the Chinese, wasn't very transparent. And frankly, it was the writing was on the wall that Sri Lanka would not be able to uh, you know, come through on its loan payments, and it ultimately defaulted, and now is controlled you know, by the Chinese side. That is a strategic port, and it gives the Chinese access to the Indian Ocean in the event that the Straits of Malacca, which is a choke point in Southeast Asia, is blocked, um, and it would give access to China through a land bridge through Xinjiang, and then also a port in Pakistan, the Gwadar port. So these have strategic aspects to them, um, even if the Chinese say this is all about just infrastructure and, and supporting these countries. So clearly there's that strategic aspect that I think worries the United States and others. Is it worrying the United States to the degree that you, you would have expected? It is there. I think the, the concern is there. The question has always been what to do about it, right? Because again, many of these countries, and I think this is an element that is missed in the United States, which is, you know, we think of all the strings that are attached and all the downsides of Chinese efforts like this. But again, developing countries that are in need of what China is offering are willing to set a lot of that aside because they, frankly, they need it, Right. And so what you're seeing under the Biden administration, you know, with, with the Trump administration, just heard a lot of complaining about the Belt and Road, but not really putting forward any of their own initiatives to address those needs of countries in the world to try to enhance America's strategic influence. And so I think the Biden administration is aware of the strategic value of large scale development finance. And now you see the Biden administration announcing, along with the G7, this creation of this Build Back Better, the B3, it's called the B3W. And that's aimed at promoting high standards, sustainable, transparent infrastructure, doing similar things the Chinese are doing, but doing it using high standards, right, that, that, that we think are important. Um, that the European Union has announced a similar program called Global Gateway. Uh, which is its own version of, of aid through the developing world. And I suspect over the next several decades, China's Belt and Road Initiative will, not, will, will no longer be the only game in town in terms of development finance and infrastructure support. Uh, and that's important because as the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has written and said, when it comes to China, we need, the United States needs to figure out less how to slow China down and more about how to run faster ourselves. What are China's current and future liabilities or where are they weak? I mean, first of all, they, if you look at the demographics in China, they have an aging population um, and they've got strong democratic, demographic headwinds that they're trying to wrap their heads around. They've got high debt load um, after you know, a couple of decades of overspending on real estate, infrastructure in China um, that have had diminishing returns. They've got significant environmental challenges 
you know, we talked about Pudong and looking out, uh, standing on the Bund in Shanghai and seeing this modern metropolis. If you go 50 miles in any direction uh, from there, of course, in one direction, you'd land in the ocean. But if you go inland, um, you know, you'll you'll find you'll you'll be in places where it's frankly hard to find clean drinking water, where the air quality is very poor uh, because of the heavy manufacturing and the coal energy generation. And so, you know, China has its own challenges, and I, I frankly think that the way they're positioning themselves with regard to Ukraine, uh, depending how things go, will put China in a very difficult geopolitical position. And they may have overplayed their hand there. So um, this is not necessarily going to be just a linear projection, linear trajectory going forward. Um, it'll take twists and turns, ups and downs. And China has their own challenges. And the world is frankly waking up to the challenges that China poses. And that's going to be a problem for China. Many, included, many countries, U.S. included, have taken a harder line on China sanctions, tariffs, export controls, and these will drag down China's economy. So I'm not suggesting China is going to collapse anytime in the near future. The Communist Party will fall out of power. I'm just saying that China will continue to be a powerful player uh, and challenges on the global stage, but it will also have challenges of its, of its own along the way. And I don't expect China to replace the United States as the world superpower anytime soon. So you you had alluded to Russia and the invasion in Ukraine. What are China's views on that conflict and how is the country positioning itself? We have seen the strategic relationship that China has with Russia play a more important role as China positions itself. And there's a much harder lean by China towards Russia. Uh, in a sense, they're trying to balance a number of things at the same time, and those are hard, frankly, to balance. The, the most important for China at this point seems to be that strategic relationship with Russia. And so they, they're not condemning Russia for the invasion. They're not even calling it an invasion. Uh, and they're basically blaming the United States and NATO expansion for what we're seeing in Ukraine today. They're trying to balance that with their principles of non-interference and state sovereignty, um, these important uh, principles that they have asserted for many, many decades are important to China. And then at the same time, they're trying to do that without causing damage to the U.S., to its relationship with the U.S. and with, the United, uh, with, with Europe. And um, they're not, frankly, doing a very good job doing it. They think they're balancing. The rest of the world thinks that they're aligned with Russia. And depending on how, how this goes, I think it could, it could, get, uh, it could get bad for China. Do you feel like Chinese leadership is surprised at how ineffective the Russian invasion has been so far? I think they're surprised at that. Certainly, I think they're surprised, frankly, that Putin decided to do a full-scale invasion and not simply go for the two provinces in the southeast in the Donbass region. Um, I think that really surprised them. A day before the Olympics, China and Russia put out this um, joint statement five pages long. I, I refer to it often as a global manifesto, uh, you know, China and Russia's worldview. No limit to the strategic partnership between Russia and China. Um, probably ill-timed for the Chinese. Um, I don't 
think that helps them in terms of trying to balance, as I said, their position. I mean, clearly with that statement coming shortly before the full-scale invasion that, that Putin um, executed, I think in, in, in the eyes of many in the international community, puts China in Russia's camp. Um, and and this a lot of this is President Xi himself, because he has moved forward to develop this strong personal bond and personal relationship with President Putin. Since 2013, Don, the two leaders have met almost 40 times. They've celebrated birthdays together. They've, uh, you know, they've, they've had shots of vodka together, enjoyed caviar together. They've got a very strong personal bond. You talked about the No Limits Agreement. Were both presidents uh, present for that? Yes. Or, or was President that done? Putin, they were. They, he, he, went, he was one of the you know, few heads of state to travel to Beijing for the Olympics. And they did it there and they had a banquet uh, where, they, where they met. Um, and a lot of people are wondering you know, what President Putin told Xi Jinping he was going to. That was my question is, wouldn't Putin have had to disclose that this is this is my plan in order to get that sort of strong language? No limits. That's really strong language. I suspect that Putin did not tell him that he was going going to do a full scale invasion. And the reason I feel that is because Putin is he's smart and savvy. Right. If he were to say to President Xi, Here's my plan to do a full-scale invasion. And President Xi indicated that he didn't support that in the meeting. Putin would have an issue. He'd have a dilemma. Because the one guy he's going to turn to when the sanctions really put pressure on Russia is President Xi in China to relieve those sanctions, to provide some economic relief. And if she had indicated to him in that meeting he didn't want him to do a full-scale invasion, and Putin went through with it anyway, then that puts at risk his relationship with President Xi. So I suspect what Putin did was talk in very general terms about more about his need to do something about the situation through Ukraine because of pressure that he's getting from the United States, because of NATO expansion, things that President Xi could sympathize with President Putin about. We started out by talking about the US-China-Russia triangle. Where do you see that triangle? How do you see that triangle evolving? Let's say, uh, play it out over the next decade. I think a lot of this depends on how Ukraine plays out. Um, and right now, uh, you know, China sees a lot of benefits to maintaining that strategic relationship with Russia. Um, one, the situation in Ukraine deflects U.S. attention away from the Indo-Pacific and putting pressure on China. So the Chinese like that. Uh, China's support for Russia could make Russia support China in things that it might do with regard to Taiwan, for example, or, or other uh, South China Sea or other territorial issues that it, that it has to deal with. Uh, if Moscow is further isolated, China could get cheap access to raw materials, Russian oil and other commodities are now selling at sort of discount prices. China will benefit from that. And at the end of the day, in terms of the U.S.-led international system, there are some Chinese who welcome the chaos in Ukraine and think that it could damage U.S. 
superpower status in the world. Uh, I don't agree with those, but uh, in fact, I think we're seeing the opposite. I think many people say, you know, this proves that the international system is has already collapsed. I would say it proves the international system is alive and well. Look at the way the U.S. and Europe and NATO came together in a cohesive fashion. And compare that to what was happening four or five years ago exactly. with NATO. Exactly. <laughs> Unbelievable. Exactly. Unbelievable. There, there, there's, a, there's a cohesion that uh, we couldn't have imagined a few years ago. That it's, it's quite incredible. It is. And if you, if you think about Putin's goals, uh, relieve U.S. pressure, relieve NATO pressure, uh, ensure that NATO military assets don't come close to Russia, the exact opposite has resulted. I think what one other thing that could potentially happen is maybe we mend some things domestically here that you know maybe we come together maybe congress starts to work a little bit more effectively maybe there's a little bit more unity in the united states that we haven't seen in a long long time i think those are those are potentials and you know byproducts that that were not predicted i think those are plausible scenarios i mean this could develop in a number of different ways but at least at this point, I think there are some positive things that we can draw from a pretty dismal situation. Paul, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Please come back on the show again. It's a it's a standing invitation. I want to thank you for your time and I want to thank you for being a genius. 